Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about being an indie publisher. What does it look like to be a publisher, to work for yourself, to be an entrepreneur, not to be one of the big boys, so to speak, at least not yet, but to be just starting out. We're talking to Andrew Burkett from Aetheris Games. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. Yeah, man. Super glad that you're back. You came on the show, I don't know, like a hundred and something episodes ago. I mean, it's been a minute. And so I'm really happy to have you back on the show to talk about this stuff. Something you've been working on for a while. You've been in the publishing game for, for how many years now? Uh, so I, I launched the first Kickstarter at the end of 2015. So a few years, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And so I tell you what, what, before we get into being a indie publisher, give me a little more about your bio and just in case people uh, haven't heard of it, haven't heard of either games, who are you? How'd you get into game design, game publishing, that kind of thing? Uh, I came up with an automotive racing game, which I thought I was going to finish. I got a bunch of artwork for it, decided to never do it, pivoted to another board game called Cul-de-Sac Conquest, went to Kickstarter, did well, and decided and realized that I really liked the industry and wanted to be a part of it. So I kept making board games, and now here I am a few years later, a few more games released. So, Yeah, very cool. And I think you bring up an interesting point when you get into the publishing game. It uh, It's typical that uh, you, you have an idea, you have this great thing that you're going to work on, and then sometimes it just doesn't work out for various reasons. And so I'm excited to just talk about some of those things. And uh, before we get into it, uh, kind of the, the nitty gritty nuts and bolts, like what made you want to publish your own game instead of, you know, going out and finding a publisher, finding one of the you know, publishers that's been around for a long time. Why would, why did you want to do it yourself? So I'm probably uh, in the minority of kind of indie game publishers in that it wasn't like, Oh, I, I have this game and I want to publish it. I knew I wanted to start a company. So I'm, I'm entrepreneurial and wanted to start a company. And then it, I happened to have this game idea and decided that would be the company. And then after pivoting into the other game, I realized that I really liked the industry and that it was actually a company that I thought was not only viable, but it would be something that I would really enjoy doing. So I, I kind of came at it from the entrepreneurial side of things more than the game design side of things. So that's probably kind of more unique yeah, definitely. I'd say most people, you know, they have an idea or they have a game that they've been working on and either they can't get it published by, you know, they haven't uh, had luck getting it signed or they just want to do it themselves. And so they kind of start with a game first and then decide to start a company. But you kind of came at it from the other side. Now, if I remember right, you had an opportunity through your college that you were kind of in this like incub- incubator for businesses. Like remind me about that. Yeah. So I was lucky enough. I went to the University of Florida and they had a program called the Gator Hatchery. So it was an on-campus incubator for students. And so essentially they just helped us start our businesses. They gave us legal advice and whatnot. So they, they brought in professionals who had done it before. And uh, they also helped us like learn how to pitch and promote our projects. And so I ended up doing a business plan competition and uh, we ended up getting third place, which was really cool. And we won like $5,000 for that. And then they sent us to a few other business plan competitions. We didn't win all of them, but we got second place in another one that won a few hundred dollars. So it was cool. Yeah, very cool. And so if you, if you were you know to sit down with somebody who's thinking about starting their own publishing company, you know, want to get into the indie space, uh, what would you tell them the things you've learned from that incubator? Like what were some of the business concepts you picked up that really helped you along the way? So I think the main thing is, uh, one, I, I always recommend that people really do some soul searching and decide whether they actually really want to start a business. Cause I think a lot of people, especially with like Kickstarter, they think, Oh, I'm just going to make this product and people are going to come and they're going to buy it. And that's it. And they don't realize like how much work actually goes into that process um, and how much business stuff happens there. Uh, but other than that, like once they do decide and they realize, okay, I actually really want to start a business. Then at that point, the main things I would recommend is knowing like you're not going to know all the accounting and all that stuff normally. Um, So you have to find the right people that are able to help with that stuff relatively affordably um, and know how to do things right 
the first time. If you want to sign a, someone else's game, you want to make sure that you have the right legal contracts in place and that you're doing things correctly. And a lot of that is just talking to other publishers. If you go and you want to do a Kickstarter, support other Kickstarter projects and find out who created them and try to start building in, in the community and getting to know these people. And a lot of the times they'll be willing to help. So I think that was the main thing for me is I, I just went and searched out for people that had done it before and was like, Hey, how did you do this? So. Yeah. I think doing research, I mean, we, we can't talk about that enough and really knowing what you're getting into before you dive in with both feet. I mean, they're diving in with both feet, jump in with both feet because there's so many horror stories out there of people that just wanted to start a business and didn't maybe do all the research or kind of figure out all the different legal ramifications, the accounting ramifications, the tax implications, the shipping, fulfillment, all those different things. And then they end up kind of having a pretty rough go at it, whether it kind of messes them up financially or, you know, they make some mistakes and kind of piss a lot of people off in the industry. So I think doing a lot yeah. of research it, it I, you can't do too much research and, and this is something i i experienced so i, I wanted to start my own business and, and kind of do my own gaming thing a long time ago but i basically interviewed a hundred and something people first <laughs> through this yeah. podcast before i jumped in and just I, I wanted to make sure i had my bases covered and i still have made many mistakes you know and cost myself some money here and there and so I, I think yeah like you're saying don't just jump in without knowing what you're getting into now let's talk a little bit more about the business side like Let's say I want to, you know, I've just decided I want to start a business. I've done the research. I've talked to a lot of people. I've got my business plan figured out. How do I do it? What does that look like? Like, what did you, did you go through legal zoom or like, how did you actually begin the process for the LLC? So getting an LLC in Florida is pretty easy. So um, for me, I just went and there's a website called sunbiz.org. It's where you get all LLCs and stuff. It's a lot cheaper than going through a service like legal zoom. So that's what I did. I just went straight there. Uh, a lot of my family members own businesses, so I had already kind of worked with them on some of their businesses, and so I knew how to go about forming the company. And then I also went to college for marketing, and so a lot of my classes require like learning the legal ramifications of different corporate structures and what different entities mean for tax uh, implications and stuff. So like. If you have a single member LLC in Florida, for example, it's treated as a sole proprietorship. So if you do something and someone tries to sue you, they can sue you personally. If you have a multi-member LLC, that becomes a lot more difficult unless there's fraudulent stuff on it. So those kind of things like learning exactly what each corporate structure is going to mean to the business and not just like rushing into like, oh, everyone has an LLC. Let's just do that. Um, and seeing what's actually going to work best for your business and taking a little bit more time on that, uh, I think is definitely important and making sure all the legal stuff is in a row. Um, if you have business partners getting corporate documents that basically say who owns what and uh, all that kind of like charter stuff where you know exactly what everyone's roles are going to be and making sure it's organized because it's easy to go into a business, especially with friends and being like, Oh, this is what we're all going to do. And then, you know, two people get busy and don't do it anymore. And then the third guy might just, you know, decide he doesn't want to do it at all and just wants to get the money for the first game. If stuff like that happens, if you don't have the right things in place, you might realize you're the only one or there's only a few of you left and you're splitting the money amongst people that aren't working anymore, basically. So, Yeah, that's a really good point. And another thing to, for anybody listening to this to think about is what are the laws in your individual state or your individual country? Because yeah. it's going to be very, very different in California than it is in Florida, than it is in New York. And so it's just a lot of things to, to again, research and, and figure out. That way you don't end up paying a lot of extra fees or you don't accidentally screw yourself over in the eyes of the IRS and they come to you and they yeah. say, hey, you owe us $10,000. Where's our money? And it's like, well, I don't have $10,000. Uh-oh. <laughs> so figuring that out. Now, Tell me a little bit different because I know a lot of people have LCs. I know other people have S corps, S corps, and so kind of given. Do you have like a, a background on really the difference as far as like the board game industry? So it it varies. Um, S corps are basically uh, treated for tax purposes similar to C corps, um, except you you have limited number of shareholders and. So S corps, you can also have LLCs that have S corp tax filing. So that. There's all kinds of differences, um, but the main parts of it is that unlike a C-Corp, you can't have a million shareholders. I think there's a cap of like 100 shareholders for an S-Corp. Um, 
there's more filing requirements and things that you have to do that you don't have to do with an LLC. Um, but like I said, I mean, it's really going to depend on individual needs and goals um, and what the team is comprised of. If it's one person doing it, it might make sense to do an LLC in most states. Um, if there's a huge team, sometimes it makes more sense to do a different corporate filing that there's more protections on it. The S and C corps are a lot more established. LLCs are a newer business entity. Um, so that's the main things that people have to kind of just watch out for. And a lot of it, it, it seems complex and seems like, oh, this is insurmountable. There's so many things I have to learn. Um, but a lot of it's just finding other businesses and asking what they did and why they did it um, and, and kind of learning and re- doing a little bit of research. It's not as daunting as it probably sounds, but it, it definitely does require a little bit of work, making sure that everything's lined up right. So you don't have to keep reforming the company a million times to get it to be right. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing I would suggest people do is talk to an accountant, talk to somebody who actually, you know, yeah, files exactly. taxes and, and knows all the ins and outs of the laws. Again, with all the laws that, that change, you know, with all the, the tax cuts that happened uh, recently, I guess it was last year, you know, the laws change and the laws change every single year, it seems like for, you know, a lot of the nuances of things. And so one of the, the smartest things I ever did was start working with a, an accountant and get it off of my plate and put it on his, you know, and pay him a fee. And, and he saves me a lot more money than I would save, you know, not using him, if, if that makes sense. And so I think, yeah. you know, finding other people that are smarter than you or know what they're, know what they're doing, been doing it for a long time is, is definitely the way to go. Yeah. I think that that's something important that people kind of don't realize is you want to play to your strengths. If that's not one of your strengths, outsourcing some other things is not always a bad thing. I think a lot of people just want to try to take everything on themselves and save money. There's certain things where that makes sense, but other things where it doesn't as much like I wouldn't do the graphic design for our games. I'm not a graphic designer. I don't want our games to look ugly. I'm not going to do it Uh, or illustrations for that matter either. So because of that, you know, I obviously outsource all that stuff and just do the art direction. But I think a lot of people, they want to save money and they'll try to take on some of these roles. And if it's not what you're qualified to do and it's outside of your comfort zone, sometimes it makes sense, but it might take more time and energy and money to do it yourself than it would to just find someone that already knows what they're doing. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now let's talk through maybe some of the mistakes you made early on. Like looking back a few years ago, what were some of the hurdles you, you kind of ran into as opposed to being able to jump over that? Looking back, you're like, oh, I wish I'd done it this way. I probably should have done it that way. Maybe save money or, or kind of do things differently. So when I first started the company, I was really trying to start a company that was a hybrid of board games and uh, video games. So the idea was that we were going to do several board games a year and then one video game a year that or every two years that would be highlighting one of our board games. So just be porting it to a video game medium, essentially. Um, And so that was the company goal. And I was trying to find investors in order to get that goal to, you know, see itself to fruition. And it wasn't easy to get, it was easy to get investors excited and interested in the idea, especially with all the data I had. I had a ton of data that I found and I did a a bunch of market research, but the difficulty was that I didn't have any proof that I was going to do it. So they didn't want to throw a bunch of money at someone that, you know, had never done it before. I was just a college student. They didn't know, you know, if I was going to take the leap and actually be able to accomplish all the goals that I set out to accomplish. So I wanted to show some proof of concept. And so I started working on the automotive game and I probably spent too much money on artwork and tried to develop it out too fast in order to get their interest when I probably should have thought about it from the end of like, if they don't come on board and I don't have investors, what would be the best course of action? And that's what I ended up doing once I pivoted to cul-de-sac conquest. And then when I did do cul-de-sac conquest, I rushed the Kickstarter a little bit. So it probably could have done better if I had done a little bit more pre-marketing and that sort of thing. And then the main error I made was I, underpriced shipping because I added stretch goals that changed the weight and size of the game, which now everyone mentions, you know, not to do that. And people had probably told me that prior and I just didn't listen. Um, and that, then I kicked myself and I was like, oh no, I should, I should have listened. 
Uh, and so now I'm very cognizant of adding weight to the gains and adding to the shipping prices. Yeah, that's something, you know, talking to Jamie Stegmaier, talking to a lot of the people in the industry that you would, you know, all of us would look to and go, wow, these people seem to know what they're doing. They've made very similar mistakes. And so it's one of those things that just keeps coming up no matter who you are or, or how how much research and whatnot you do. It's just so easy to mess up the shipping, to mess up the fulfillment side of things. And so let's, let's talk about that for a second. What advice would you give to somebody who maybe maybe they've got a game going to Kickstarter? You know, they're trying to figure out all the details, trying to work out all the shipping costs and whatnot. What would you tell that person right now that maybe they're on the front end of their indie publishing company? How do they avoid, yeah. you know, going broke due to shipping? Well, the big thing is going to be looking into fulfillment companies and getting very accurate quotes before the Kickstarter. Um, and included in that is I typically try to get pre-production copies so that I have a manufacturing proof that's close to the final product. So I know at least a very close number of what the weight is going to be. Having known the weight prior helps a lot with making sure you don't change the weight later. And I try to measure it based on the weight with stretch goals added. So if it doesn't reach the stretch goals, the shipping won't go up. It will just stay the same or go down a little bit. Um, shipping prices, though, if you go over certain barriers, end up changing to be drastically different. So I think a lot of people probably don't realize like, oh, I add this little tiny thing and it's only changing the weight by X amount of you know ounces. It's not going to do anything. And, and it brings them to the next threshold on shipping rates and it, it you know, adds several dollars per game. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but it, if it's three or four dollars a game and you have a thousand backers, that's a few thousand dollars that you didn't account for. So the other thing is making sure that you have enough room in your budget to you know, prepare for unexpected things. There's always going to be some unexpected expenses that come up. And so if you put your Kickstarter at a price point where you say, okay, I only need a goal of $10,000, but you really need $12,000. You have to realize that you need, you might need to put more than the $2,000 you think you're going to put into it as you're going to have all these unexpected costs go up. So you want to set your goal with that in mind and make it maybe a little higher than you think it needs to be so that you can prepare for contingencies. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I've run into is shipping costs change and they never go down. <laughs> they always go up, whether it's the postal service or, or UPS or, you know, Royal Air or whoever. Uh, it's always going to go up. And so if you launch a Kickstarter in 2019 and it doesn't ship until 2020, there's a real good chance those shipping costs are going to be a little bit more than you anticipate just because then rates naturally go up. And so just being aware of the weights and something I ran into with uh, my board game design advice book uh, as well. I wanted 150 uh, contributors, 150 designers in the book. That was, you know, 150 is a really cool number, real good round number. But what I ran into around the time I hit, I don't know, I was at like 135, 140, something like that, uh, of people that had already contributed, I started calculating the weight of the book. And I realized that if I went to 150, then it was going to be just over two pounds, which was going to put me into the next bracket yeah. of shipping costs. And my, my costs were going to go up, you know, $1.50, $2 a piece, something like that. And like you're saying, uh, you know, I had roughly 2,000 people that bought a print copy of the book. So an extra $2, that's $4,000. All of a sudden, it's some, some real money because of the scale. And so I had to limit the number of people going into the book just because I didn't want to get over into that next threshold of, of weight. And it's something, luckily, I thought about that. Luckily, you know, I had friends that had told me about the, the brackets because, you, you know, oh, it's just another ounce. Well, to go from 1.99 up to 2.01, it's, it's a huge difference. And so it's something yeah. for people to be aware of. Now, as far as like some other highs and lows, uh, what have been some some of your highest highs as a publisher? And then uh, in a minute, let's get into maybe some of the lowest lows. So the highest highs, uh, everyone probably realizes the Kickstarter when you are able to hit your funding goal is definitely a huge high. It makes you feel really good to see that the project's actually going to come to fruition and that it's going to be a thing in real life and people are going to play this game that you made and or played a part in making so on the publishing end even if you didn't design the game it it feels cool seeing these games that you found and uh kind of discover and basically and and knowing that this designer is really cool and they deserve to have their game published and not, now they're gonna see their dreams come to reality and seeing the artist dreams come to reality when their artwork's actually used on a physical product and all that kind of stuff and seeing how many people are affected 
by positively by seeing a game that they made come to real life and seeing fans enjoy the game and playing and having fun with their family and friends. Those are the real highs for me is seeing people enjoy the products that we create and seeing the creators, you know, pride and knowing that this thing that they developed and worked for years on sometimes and tirelessly on and feeling like there's never going to be any financial gain getting to actually see it and feel it and know this is, you know, something real now. Yeah, and it's got to feel good when you're at a convention and somebody who loves your company, loves your game, comes up at the booth and they shake your hand and say, hey, I want you to know how much I appreciate it. I mean, it just feels good to have people tell you how, how great your game is, how great your company is, that kind of thing. Uh, but on the flip side, there's also, you know, maybe people that don't love every game that you make and maybe don't like certain companies for sometimes really ridiculous, ridiculous reasons. And so what have, what have been some of the lowest lows on the uh, publishing game? Uh... Like you said, I mean, it, it's a lot of with people. There, there's a lot of great people and fans that will be very supportive. There's some lows when you see negative reviews or people bad mouthing the company or the certain games or anything like that, saying how bad they are or what, whatever. If they don't like it, you know, people are very aggressive with sometimes how they present things and don't realize that there are people behind these products that they're bashing. Um, I think I think that can be difficult sometimes. I think it's also difficult when a small publisher like us, we don't make a ton of money and I'm doing it as a second job and I have a full-time gig and a lot of small indie publishers aren't doing this as a full-time job, but a lot of people still expect a very lot out of us. So if you don't answer an email within a few minutes, I've, I've had people, because my phone number and all my contact information so readily accessible customers will email me call me message me on facebook like all kinds of stuff all at the same exact time expecting to get a response immediately and especially like there's a lot of personal things i've been dealing with recently and so during those times especially i'm like i i kind of need a little bit more time than a a few minutes to answer your email it's gonna take me a little while yeah, absolutely. And so as an indie publisher, how do you handle the negative reviews, the negative stuff on Facebook, whatever? Like, what do you, what's your advice to somebody that maybe, you know, as they're going, they're going to run into negativity. It's just, uh, you know, it's going to happen. Yeah. How do you handle it? So one is uh, not taking it personally and trying to realize that not everyone's going to like your thing and that for every negative review that you see, there's probably five people who really enjoyed it that never said anything to you about it. And realizing that it's a lot easier to be vocal about something you don't like than it is for people to explain all the stuff that they love. And so there's a lot of people who do love your products that might never tell you. And knowing that these negative reviews aren't everything, they don't mean that the game's horrible. And just because one person doesn't like it or several people don't like it doesn't mean really anything um i think that's important and then also just realizing that it's easy and a lot of publishers seem to get go on the defensive and that's not the best way to respond to criticism and understanding that some of the criticism sometimes is just justified and it makes sense to look at that and realize okay maybe they're right about some of these points maybe they you know them saying that the game's trash and that it should be burned in a fire Maybe that's not true, but if they say, okay, this one component isn't as great. And and so there's some constructive criticism. And so learning and realizing which is just, you know, complete volatile stuff that you don't, you don't want to deal with the the vile comments and you probably should just stay away from it or say, sorry, you feel that way. We hope you enjoy one of our other games or whatever, something that, you know, where you're not getting all defensive. But then for those instances where, it's you know helpful criticism to acknowledge that that's something that you're going to look into and something that maybe in future games you can fix. So there's a lot of companies I've noticed that had problems with the rule books where people said the rule books were confusing and they went on and realized that was an issue once people talked to them and got better rule book editors and improved their processes. So sometimes feedback is important, even if it's negative. And so just being able to sort through what's actually going to provide value and make your company better versus what should just kind of mostly be ignored as just someone's opinion. 
Yeah, I completely agree. You know, the whole don't take it personally, you know, don't let your identity be wrapped up in stuff that you make, first of all, but definitely don't let it be wrapped up in people's opinions about stuff that you make. You know, be be, be you, enjoy uh, the things that you've made and, and feel proud of them and, and don't get so caught up in uh, letting other people take that away from you. Uh, and I like also what you're saying as far as read between the lines sometimes. Sometimes people, maybe the way they're saying it makes them a bit of a jerk, but maybe they do have something in between the lines, so to speak, that can help you improve as a company or improve the next, you know, the second edition of the game or improve the next print run or maybe uh, go with a different manufacturer. Maybe the, the manufacturer you've been using didn't didn't have the highest quality that maybe you should have looked into it a little bit more. And so you maybe go a different factory next time. It's just so much we can learn. You know, something I learned a long time ago is, is notice the best parts. You know, try to try to parse through and ignore the the negative, even though our brains seem to be wired to, to lean towards the negative and, and just going to, you yeah. know, go that direction. But what does it look like to notice the best parts of something? Uh, even if it's somebody that's irate online and they think you're this terrible slime ball or whatever, like what, what in there can you, can you grow from? Can you learn from? Maybe it's just an opportunity to grow in patience or an opportunity to grow in humility, an opportunity just to grow in uh, your kindness for someone who maybe doesn't deserve it. But uh, I think it's just an interesting, it's a better way to take it than like, like you're saying, than being defensive than going online. Cause if you, I feel like this has happened recently actually where a publisher made some mistakes with the shipping uh, and then got real defensive and started attacking uh, backers of the, of the game. And all of a sudden now everyone's against them, you know, where, where before yeah. they're like, okay, this is a problem. But now all of a sudden you, you've escalated things and made it so much worse. And so I think that's also something to think about. So talk to me about like your reputation as an indie publisher. Like, what can you do to make sure people uh, look at you in the best light possible and, and you kind of maintain the reputation that, that helps you sell games long-term? So I, I think a lot of it is about being authentic. So I, I feel like, my presence online is genuinely who I am and I try to post regularly in the groups and I feel like I'm a pretty active part of the community. When I do Kickstarters, I'm very vocal about how much I appreciate the support of our Kickstarter backers. And also I make sure that I constantly remind myself that these people gave me money to make something that I wanted to make and that even though sometimes, you know, Kickstarter backers feel like because they gave you a few dollars that, you know, they own you and, you know, that you should bend over backwards to help them with anything. Even though, you know, there, there are a few people who are like that. For the most part, Kickstarter and, you know, the community of people in the board game industry are really, really cool. And so getting to know people and be a part of the community and getting people to realize how much you value them as a customer or potential customer is very important to me and then just like I post regular backer updates when I post updates I add gifts and try to make them funny because I know that I get a million backer updates and if they aren't fun I don't read them so uh, I try to do as much stuff as I can to get people to stay informed and want to be part of the experience and trying to make them feel like they're part of the development of our games too so I post artwork samples online and try to get feedback so I can change things and make things as, as good as possible. And like I said, even if it's negative feedback from other games, I try to learn from that and grow and, you know, make our games continually better each time. Yeah, for sure. I, I feel like as an indie publisher, especially a smaller one, your, your goal should be not to find customers or create customers, or create backers. It should be to create raving fans right? People who are just super excited about the stuff that you're creating. I think that's what Jamie Stegmaier over at Stonemaier Games has done an incredible job of. I mean, he could say, I'm releasing a box full of rocks and he would sell out in the pre-order. And it just because people are so, such raving fans of his company now. And so like, what does it look like? What's been your experience of like, how do you create raving fans? How do you go beyond customers, beyond backers? You mentioned a few things, you're making the updates fun, you know, posting different updates about art and things like that. But what else? How can you go to that, that, that second mile, that, that next level so that you're creating raving fans more than just customers? Um, I think there's a lot of things. So, some of it is a personal touch of letting people know who you are. So I think posting in all the groups and being known definitely helps with that. So a lot of raving fans, once people have seen and experienced the content. So Jamie obviously does a great job with his blog. And because so many people follow his blog, he creates raving fans through that. And if you look at his blog, it's not all board game related. He posts a lot of personal and fun stuff as well, just completely, you know, outside of board game realm stuff. 
And I think that really get gets people to feel like they know him. Um, and then I think that knowing him, in addition to his games being excellent, helps people realize like, okay, I want the next game. I want to support him. I want to support this company. And so I, I think that he's a, a good example of someone who's done really well with it. And James Hudson's another one, obviously, that became a really big part of the community and did so much to help other creators. Obviously, like when I started, I spoke to him all the time. He wasn't anywhere where he is now and he always helped me. And then now that he's grown and, you know, is crazy beyond where, where I am at, he's still friends with me. We still talk and he's still super helpful to me and a ton of other small creators. And so I think realizing those those people and being genuinely nice to people goes a long way because I'm a raving fan of Skybound because of him and have been a raving fan of Druid City Games because of him. And I think that that's the main thing is business people tend to, you know, just think about expanding their brand. But a big part of your brand is getting people to realize that there's people behind it and getting people to realize who you are and what your brand stands for is really important. And uh, some of the things I, for my first Kickstarter, I lost money doing this, but I was willing to do it. I sent person, I sent thank you notes and stickers to all of our backers. Cause I knew what, once we started getting through the project that I was going to deliver late and I didn't want to deliver late and just upset everyone. So I was like, sorry, we're late, but here's thank you cards and free stickers. Uh, so I, I spent more money doing that, but I think people really appreciate that. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just MIA and your game's never going to arrive. A lot of times, you know, people have those fears with Kickstarter. And so knowing that they don't have to have those fears and that I was a creator who was actually going to deliver the promises and that I was happy and proud to have them as supporters, um, I think created some raving fans for sure. Yeah, and it also puts a face to the company. You're not just some company. You're you're Andrew. You're a person. You're you're a guy that is running this company, and people connect to people a lot more than they connect to companies. And so I think that's just another yeah. thing to, to be aware of. Don't try to be something that you're not. You know, this one thing that really it just makes me laugh is when you know you have one person running a board game company, and then they say we, or they say and the team. It's like who's the team? You're you're the team. You're you're. It's just you. Stop saying we. But anyway, and so like, don't don't feel like you have to be bigger than you are, or try to pretend you're, you're something that you're not. Just be you, and, and just be human. Be be personable. You know, reach out to people. Send them stickers. Send them thank you notes. Things like that, because that's going to get people to connect. And talking about marketing again, if you have raving fans, you can spend a lot less money on marketing because they're going to do it for you. They're going to send uh, messages out to people. They're going to post in the Facebook groups and things like that. They're going to help you in your marketing, and they're going to do it because they love your company. They love your games. They like you as a person. And so having Raiden fans like just helps with everything, whether you're talking about your bottom line, whether you're talking about uh, helping you post about rules explanations on BoardGameGeek, whether it's talking about helping you in the marketing side of things, helping you with first day backers, you know, people showing up on the day one of the campaign so your numbers spike and they look really good and it kind of gets into the algorithm better. Like Raiden fans are the way to go. And I feel like you don't need that many to really have a sustainable company. You don't need a million. I mean, you could probably have 100, 200, maybe 1,000. Uh, and you can have a, a pretty solid indie board game company. So it's just something to think about from a, a customer service standpoint. Yeah, I, I think um, I always find it interesting when you look at companies' Kickstarter profiles and you'll see there, there's a lot of companies that like one project they do might have like 1,500 backers and mm -hmm. then the next one they do is like five. Yeah. And you're like, how, do, how does that work? So they create some products that people clearly want and when they create that product, you know, people come, but then these other projects they create, no one cares. And so I, I think that that's something that's kind of interesting. You'll see when, when I look at Kickstarter accounts, you can tell who has raving fans based on what their backer numbers look like project to project. So there, there's a lot of people who do have those raving fans that one project will go on Kickstarter and do fairly well. The next one they do is going to have similar number of backers. They might have a little bit more or a little bit less, but they're going to have those same people come early on. And because of that, those projects are going to end up a, this pretty close to the same point if they're comparable um, without, you know, having these crazy, you know, one, one campaign gets no backers and then, you know, the next one has a, a thousand or anything like that. So I think raving fans are definitely the way to go. It is hard to create them, though, and it does sometimes require 
getting a few games under your belt and getting people to know you as a person, know your games and knowing your company. So, Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's switch gears just a little bit. You know, if we're talking about indie game publishers, a lot of, a lot of times, like we mentioned early on, it's a person has an idea for a game. They want to, they want their personal game, their design uh, to come to life. And so they kind of go that way, but you've gone a different route because uh, you've been reaching out and finding other games and signing other games. And so what does that look like? How do you, how do you like walk me through that process of what it looks like to go out trying to find other games that you're going to publish and, and let's, let's kind of work through. Cause I feel like there's a lot of things about this process that people don't understand, especially from an indie uh, publishing viewpoint. Yeah. So I, I think uh, coming from an entrepreneurial background, um, my belief has always been that in order to be sustainable as a company for the most part without high marketing budgets that you need a few games a year in order to get uh, the distributors to be interested enough to pick up your products you need a few games a year to make enough money on kickstarter to have some sustainable revenue coming in and so because of that i can't make 10 games a year i don't have the time for it with all the other things i do and i think that my time is more valuable on the publishing side. And so though I do de enjoy designing games and am able to design games that I think are relatively good, um, I don't always feel like I have to be the one doing it. And so even some of my upcoming designs that potentially will be published at some point, um, I'm doing a lot of co-designs with other designers so that I don't have to put as much work into that. So with that, you know, I want to sign these games from other designers so that I have more time to focus on the marketing and sales and publishing side of things. How that process typically works is varied based on the publisher. But as a small publisher, I prefer to play the game with the designer. So a lot of times if a game is signed by me, I've played it with the designer before. There are exceptions. So like we publish Mutant Crops the designers in Argentina, but I licensed the game because I had a few people when I had a retail store play it and they all loved it. I played it. I really loved it. And I realized that it was a game that I wanted to be part of the portfolio. Uh, but that's the thing is a lot of the times it's, it's hard for you to just go cold pitch a publisher. A lot of times when I get those kind of pitches, I don't really have a lot of time. So they, they kind of get backburnered. I will maybe eventually look at it. And if it's cool, I will ask for a prototype and try to play it and whatnot. But most of the time, unless I go and meet with the designer at some point, I don't do that. So normally my process is I, I meet a designer uh, a lot of times either at conventions or there's some local design meetups. And I've actually signed several games from the local design meetups because there's a ton of great designers in Orlando. Um, and so I'll go to these meetups and play a game with someone. And if it's something that I really am like, wow, this game is incredible. I can envision what this would look like as a final product. I could envision this being part of my game lineup and fitting my brand and something kind of my, my brands. I'm trying to transition it. So we made these silly quirky games and I still want to do that but I've changed the box size to be consistent so that we have a small box series games. And those are meant to be more off the wall, crazy, silly games, and also do some more serious, bigger games as well. Um, so I'm trying to fit within that branding. And so I'll, I'll look, try to sign the game. And then from that point, I work with a designer to develop the game over time after the game is developed to the point where I feel like it's com I'm comfortable with it, I pass it off to another developer so that there's another set of eyes on it. Uh, I get that development feedback. I go back with the designer for one final pass to see if there's anything the developer missed or if the developer added or subtracted anything that maybe shouldn't have been added or subtracted. Um, just cleaning everything up, getting it to the point where I think, okay, this game is the best it's going to be. From that point, obviously, you need to do artwork and graphic design and get the Kickstarter ready. If you're going to Kickstarter, you have to reach out to reviewers at least a month before the Kickstarter. You have to do pre-marketing. There's a lot that is involved with creating a game um, after that signing. So uh, the Ruins of Mars, which is the next game I'm putting on Kickstarter in about a month. It 
is about a two-year process for me for this game. So I signed it almost two years ago and at the end of October. So I'm launching in September. So by the time the Kickstarter runs through and everything, it's going to have been about two years. So the process does take a lot of time. I think there were some snags along the way that made it a little bit lengthier, but I'm also working on several projects at a time now, more like a more medium size indie publisher. Um, I'm trying to do like three or four a year. And so figuring out timelines within, you know, multiple projects and project management with several things going on at once is difficult, even if that's your only thing, but all as doing it as a side job while also working full time, it's very difficult. So yeah, gotcha. And so walk me through when you're when you're sitting down, you're playing with a designer and maybe Ruins of Mars is a good example. What is the first yeah. thing going through your head when you're thinking, do I want to sign this? Like wh- walk me through because the designer's thinking, hey, this is a fun game. But as a pu- as a publisher, what are you thinking about? Like, What are the many details that you're going through? So, so a lot of things are going through my head. Uh, I'm looking at the components and wondering how, how much would this game cost or what's a rough idea of what this game will cost? I'm wondering if the play experience justifies that price point. So if it's a 10 minute game and it's going to be $150, that's probably not something I'm interested in. But if it seems like all that lines up, if I think the theme feels good with the game and everything there is good, I, I'll, and I like the theme, then that's something I'll play into consideration. If it's a more abstract game where the theme is kind of just there, I wonder, you know, what theme could make this stand out more in the market? Is there something that I could get to use to draw people into this game? That sort of thing. Um, And then I think really about the marketability and sales potential. Is this a mechanism that people like nowadays? Is this something that would stand up against modern games? Or does this feel more like an older game? Does it seem like something else is it too close to something else that's already in the market those are the kind of things that are running through my head and normally it's not going to be i play the game once and i'm like all right i'm sold a a lot of times i might realize i'm sold uh but tell the designer i need to play it several more times because i want to be able to justify myself that it wasn't just one fluke experience and i play with different players and try to break anything possible and even if some of the components are a little broken if some of the things aren't completely balanced that's okay to me as long as i think the core mechanisms are good and that those balance issues can be fixed with development yeah i feel like a lot of those things are are things that people don't necessarily think about when they're when they're sitting down with a publisher you know they're thinking my game is fun you know, I like it. Everyone I play it with, they like it. Well, that's not necessarily the whole picture. There's so much more to think about because, yeah. again, this is a product. This is, you know, can it, can it hold up in today's market? Can you run a Kickstarter? Uh, if you're a company that has to rely on Kickstarter, well, not all games are for Kickstarter. You know, if you have a, a party game, that's going to be a little harder to sell. You know, if you've got a family yeah. game, it's a little harder to sell. And so it's just a lot of things for, for designers to think about when they're sitting down to, to pitch a game. Uh, to a publisher. Now, one thing we've talked about a little bit so far are timelines, you know, and when to do certain things and that kind of thing. One thing we were talking about before we uh, started recording is how when you're an entrepreneur, you know, the timelines can be a little uh, gray because, you know, you don't have a boss looking over your shoulder, making sure things get done and things like that. And so what, what, what do you do? Like, what's your process of making sure things get done on time, creating timelines, you know, all that kind of thing. So I, uh, I go back and forth. So the problem is it's really easy to, have a plan in place and say, I'm going to be more organized. I'm going to do this, what I think is the right way. And then to actually implement that and do it over a long period of time is a lot more difficult. So I'll go through periods where I'm very focused and create good timelines and I'm getting everything done that I need to get done. But when you're working with project management and you're doing several projects at the same time, it's easy to focus on something that's in the far in the future and neglect the project that really should be at the forefront. And vice versa. Sometimes the project that the forefront's taking so much attention that you're delaying the projects in the future to the point where they won't get out even close on time. If I don't have artwork for a game, then I'm not going to be able to kickstart it. So I need to be working on artwork for a game while the other game is going to reviewers and going to Kickstarter. So 
for example, Ruins of Mars is going right now to, you know, to reviewers and whatnot. I'm getting pre-production copies of White Elephant, the next game in the lineup, which I'm either going to go to Kickstarter or go straight to retail. I haven't completely figured out we're pitching it to retailers um, right now. And depending on that response, I might go to Kickstarter or might not. Uh, but I'm trying to have all that in place so that that game's ready and I don't have to worry about it being pushed back in the timeline. And then the game after that, I need to make sure that all the development's done. And so I like to force deadlines on myself. Um, and I did that kind of with Ruins of Mars. It had been delayed since I was supposed to launch it in January. And I had a lot of personal issues that delayed it. And there were other things with, within the game that delayed the timelines. Um which I won't get too much into detail with all that kind of stuff, but the timelines were delayed. And because of that, it would be easy to just kind of let it keep going and be like, "Eh," you know, and I, I wanted to delay it over, you know, just launching it and it not be the best product it can be. And so now I think I'm confident this is the best the game's going to be and I'm ready to, to release it. But I wanted to make sure that, I set a date well in advance and was able to start promoting a date and start doing all the pre-marketing and stuff. And I also wanted to set a date because in my mind, then I know I have to do this this week. I need to do this this week um, and get everything lined up so that things get done and the game gets out on time rather than pushing it back further. And so my big fear with Ruins of Mars and why I set the date I did is I didn't want to push it past October I didn't want to launch in November and December and pushing it back to January would have meant that it was delayed an entire year and I didn't want it to get that far out. So that's kind of the considerations I go into. And I, I do write a weekly to-do lists and every single day I have things to check off my list and I make sure that all the projects are getting some love at various times every month. So. Yeah. Now, do you have like a formula that you've kind of developed at this point where you say, all right, six months out, I got to make sure this happens three months out, two weeks out, that kind of thing? Uh, somewhat. I, I have an idea of some of that stuff, um, but sometimes it's kind of a just, you know, how things play out. So like art, it's really hard to know when artists are going to get, they can say timelines, but there's delays. And when artists or graphic designers get back to you and I've had delays where the artist took too long and then the graphic designer was already working on another project by the time that we got the artwork. And so we had allotted for it a certain week and because it wasn't ready in that week, it ends up getting delayed a few weeks. Um, And so all those little delays add up. And so I think what people don't realize is then even that, so say it got delayed one week from the artist and then it took the graphic designer an additional week because that week they were busy. So that seems like it's only two weeks, but you need the games to reviewers at least a month in advance normally. So that might cause additional delays if that ends up being during Chinese New Year and you're not able to get a pre-production copy. If that ends up being a time when there's a lot of conventions and reviewers are busier, all those kind of things come into consideration. But it's, I found, very difficult to have exact dates until the project is really nearing completion. Um, and I think that's something that I probably have to get better at. And a lot of publishers probably have to get better at, but, but it's difficult because you have a bunch of cogs, there's a bunch of moving parts and it's hard to know if a delay happens here, what's going to happen to the ultimately and what that delay is going to mean for the project overall. Yeah. Now, do you use any software or do you have any advice as far as project management and just kind of keeping everything organized, keeping things on track? Uh, Not really. I use Trello a lot to manage stuff and I use Google uh, religiously. So I, I have Google Docs for like all the games, which list all the components and list all the things that are graphic design needs and try to list all the, the di- deadlines and timelines and stuff. I'm trying to get a little bit better at that stuff, um, but it, it's kind of a work in progress. And it seems like a lot of indie publishers, like I said, they're doing it as a second job. They're, you know, working other jobs. So because of that, they don't have a ton of time. And so it seems like you want it. It's easier to work in the business than 
on the business. So I think a lot of the times that's the problem with myself and a lot of other creators and publishers is doing that organization stuff might help a ton in the long run, but it's easier to say, oh, I really need to work on the Kickstarter for this game and work on that first, even though, you know, working on the timelines and getting everything right might end up helping the business more overall. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, awesome, Andrew. This has been really great, man. Do you have any like closing thoughts? Like what would you tell a person sitting there listening to this? Maybe they're driving their car. Maybe they're out mowing their grass on a run, something like that. And they're pondering, what would it look like for me to run an indie board game publishing company? What would you tell that person? What, what, like, what, what's your best advice? Uh, my best advice is probably, like I said at the beginning, reach out to other creators. I'm pretty accessible. If you want to ask me questions, I will most likely answer them. You know, not not maybe not in the exact second you send it to me or anything, but eventually I'll answer. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people are like that. So getting help from other people is a big one. I think that a lot of people have made mistakes. You don't have to make the same mistakes as they did. If you learn from other people's mistakes, you'll be saving a lot of money in the long run. I think the other thing is, is knowing that it all seems daunting and impossible until you do it. So I, I think the first game, it seemed like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm just kind of hoping that I can figure it out. And you want to be prepared enough that you don't feel too much like that. But I think to an extent, all creators, the first time they do something are going to feel like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I hope I can figure this out. And you just kind of have to. I think that it's pretty important for new creators to realize you're not alone in that. It's going to be hard. It's a lot of work. You might not know everything, but don't let that stop you from starting. I think a lot of people just don't start because they're so intimidated by it. And I have this weird kind of dichotomy where I try to dissuade people from starting a business unless they really want to, but also trying to explain, like, don't feel like you need to know everything when you start it. If you want to start a business and you want to do publishing, don't feel like I need to know everything before I start because it will take forever. I still don't know everything. I, I don't think any of us do. So, Yeah, definitely. Well, hey, man, tell me about that game on Kickstarter right now. Ruins of Mars launches September 24th on Kickstarter. Ruins of Mars is a larger uh, game for us. So we uh, do a lot of small box games, like I said, with quirkier themes. Ruins of Mars is one of our bigger games. It's a 60 to minute, 90 minute strategy game which uses a rondelle so it's action selection with the rondelle with uh, a mancala-esque shifting resource mechanism so the action tiles that are below each site determine what benefits you'll get from that site but those action tiles shift every turn so when i play my rover on a specific site that's going to change where those tiles end up the next round for the next player so it's going to change what they want to do because the, those tiles shift and it changes how good certain actions are at that point of time in the game. Awesome. Well, Andrew, man, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?